Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6, to the church in Sardis. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How would you answer if I asked you, do you like surprises? There are some people who constitutionally like to be surprised, and there are many people who don't like surprises of any sort. The worst thing you could do for them would be give them a surprise party on their birthday. But most of us, I think, would agree with what Denise just mouthed. She said, depends. <laughs> Is it a surprise gift that you weren't expecting? Very welcome, right? Is it a surprise letter from the IRS? (laughs) Not so welcome, is it? Is it a surprise party? Some people might like that. Some people might be mortified with a surprise party. A surprise visit. Somebody just shows up. Well, that depends on who that person is, right? So surprises can be good. Surprises can be not so good. Here we have a letter to another church. And this is the... What, the fourth church we've considered? Um, No, I'm sorry, now we're in the fifth church already, the fifth church. And here this letter uh, contains some surprises. And they were surprises to the church. There is some surprise news to the church, and there is a surprise visit that is kind of telegraphed here, announced that might happen in the future. As we have seen... Each time, what Jesus does in these letters is, first of all, he presents himself. And he describes himself using details that came out of that vision that we saw in chapter 1. So, as we've seen, chapters 2, 3, and in some ways, the the whole book of Revelation, they flow out of that initial vision in chapter 1. And as we've seen also, each letter picks up a detail or two details from that initial vision that apply particularly to that church. So how does he identify himself here? Verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he identifies himself, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So if we go back to chapter 1, we find this, John to the seven churches, in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. 
But now we have some new information. We met the seven spirits in chapter 1, but now we, now we learn that Jesus has these seven spirits. And as we've seen, this is a curious expression for us, the seven spirits. But what we've decided is that the best interpretation is that the seven spirits are really the sevenfold Holy Spirit, who is among all the churches. And we saw that the number seven is a number of completeness, reflecting on the initial creation that took place in six days, and then seventh day was rest, and it was over, it was done. And so seven is this number that indicates completeness. So by saying the sevenfold spirit, this is the the complete spirit who is with all of the churches. And here we learn that Jesus has the seven spirits. Jesus has the Holy Spirit. This is another indication that the, the, the works that we call the Gospel of John, which is technically anonymous, uh, and the three letters of 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation, that these are all written by the same hand. Why? Because the theology of the Spirit, the theology of the Holy Spirit here in Revelation, is the theology of the Holy Spirit that we find, especially in these other writings, what we call the Gospel of John and the Letters of John. Just to give you an idea, John chapter 3, verse 34, it's on page 984, says this, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So what does Jesus do? He gives the Spirit. What must He have in order to be able to give the Spirit? He must have the Spirit. And this is, the, this is what we find in, in the Gospel of John. In uh, chapters 15, 16, talks much about the Spirit. And if you look at, for example, chapter 15, verse 26, it's on page 999 in your Bibles, 1526. It says, but when the Helper comes, and Jesus is calling the Holy Spirit the Helper, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but Jesus says, I will give him to you. So he proceeds from the Father, and also he is given to us by the Son. Chapter 6, verse 7 as well has the same idea, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is all confirming the same idea that the Son has the Spirit, and the Son gives the Spirit to whom He pleases. We also find that in 1 John. Oh, let's read it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24 on page uh, 1,124, says, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And here it's referring to Jesus Christ. So this is the theology of the Spirit in the writings of John, and they all fit together in this regard. Um, In addition to having... The Holy Spirit, it says here, in going back to chapter 3, verse 1 of Revelation, and He also has the seven stars. So we saw that back in, in, the, in the first chapter, in, in chapter 1, in this initial vision. If you look at, for example, chapter 1, verse 16, In His right hand He held seven stars. 
And, and then we saw, helpfully, he interpreted the seven stars for us. If you look at verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So, he has the Spirit, he has the, the stars, the, the angelic messengers, representative messengers of those different churches, and he walks among the lampstands that represent the churches. Now, what does this have to do with the church in Sardis? Why did he identify himself to the church in Sardis in this manner? As we will see, Jesus had insight into the church in Sardis that the church itself didn't have. We saw that last week, that he was able to look into the, the, the soul with his flaming eyes, But here we have another image of his closeness, his proximity to the church, and his access through the Holy Spirit. He's going to see into the church and reveal things that the church didn't even see. Also, Jesus had what the church and the churches and our church need most. He had the Spirit. So he's going to to point out that this this church needed, needed something, and the only way to get what they needed was through the Holy Spirit. So he's announcing at the beginning, Church, what I am going to tell you that you need, I have. And I can give to you. If you will apply to me to get it, if you will come to me to get it, I will give you, I will pour out on you, I will provide for you what you need. The question for that church, and the question for our church, and the question for any church, is if we will hear All of these end with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's that will determine what will happen in our case, whether we will hear or not. After the description of Jesus, in each case we have a description of the church, describing the condition of the church. And in every case, Jesus says, I know, I know. In most cases, he says, in five of the seven churches, he says, I know your works. And that's what he says here. Look at verse, actually still in verse 1. Second part of verse 1. I know your works. But it's interesting here that what Jesus does, he doesn't talk about their works. In most cases, he says, this work, that work, you do this, you're not doing this, I, I know what you're doing, and this is good, you want to work on this. He doesn't give any details here, but he jumps right to a surprising, and here's the first surprise, a surprising and devastating evaluation of the condition of the church in general, based on what he knows about their works. And this is what he says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Now, that would have fallen like a hammer on that church. They had a reputation. Maybe a reputation among the people of Sardis. Maybe a reputation among the other churches in the area. Certainly that's the reputation that they fostered among themselves, that we are a lively church. We are an active church. But Jesus said, that's just your reputation. The reality is different. This is the first surprise. The reality is different. Actually, you are dead. 
Now, he clarifies immediately, it's not particularly positive, but we find out that the church is not completely dead, because there are some elements that are not yet dead, they're merely dying. So this is not a a hugely positive improvement here, but if we keep reading, we find that there were a few elements that were simply moribund, that they were almost dead. He says uh, in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So much of the church was dead. Part of the church was about to die. And then he describes what that means, what he means by this. The end of verse 2, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And that seems to be a description of what it means to be dead or dying. To be leaving everything undone. To be leaving everything half done. It looks like this church was, was something of a half-hearted church. A church that wasn't able to, to finish anything, to finish the task, to complete anything. It, it just sort of made some movement towards things, but never finished what they started. In addition to the dead and the dying, Jesus said that there were some elements there, a few elements. If you look at verse 4, we'll go back to verse 3 in a sec, but let's look go to verse 4. Yet, a little bit of a qualification here, yet you still have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there were a few names. By the way, it doesn't come out in English so much, but there is a word play. The, the, the word name or names shows up here a number of times. He says, you have a name of being alive. That is a reputation. Then he says, you have a few names in Sardis. That is, persons in Sardis. And later he says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. And so he's playing with this idea of names. He says you have a few names, a few persons who have not soiled their garments. So this also gives us an idea of, by way of contrast, uh, who or what the the others were doing. It looks like they had soiled garments, uh, that they were somehow stained, that they were tainted. This is perhaps a reference to the wool dyeing industry in the city of Sardis. Uh, The city of Sardis had a glorious past, by by the way. It was the capital city of the kingdom of Lydia. The kingdom was called Lydia. It wasn't the queen Lydia. The kingdom was called Lydia. And it was a a superpower in its day. And this was the capital city. And they had a prominent uh, or a prosperous wool dyeing industry. If you're in the wool dyeing industry, how would you look when you're coming home from work? You'd probably be covered. With, with dye. And so that may be the idea. It would be unusual for somebody who's working in the wool dyeing industry not to be covered with stains. And it looks like that was the situation in the church that most of the people were, were covered with stains. And if somebody walked out of the factory with no stains, they would really, they would really look amazing, right? And there were just a few here that looked amazing in the church, that they were not covered with some sort of moral taint. It's interesting, isn't it? Did you notice that Jesus doesn't mention idolatry like he did in some of the churches? He didn't mention immorality. 
like he did in some of the churches. He didn't mention persecution like he did in some of the churches. He doesn't mention any of the typical problems in the other churches. And those were the three problems. The, the persecution and the idolatry and the immorality. He doesn't mention any of those. He just said, your works, they're incomplete. You're not finishing the task. It may be that this church's problem was that it was simply respectable. Too respectable. It had become too respectable and therefore innocuous, tame, bland, not a threat to anyone at all. Uh, Perhaps their members sat on the different boards of the civic associations of Sardis. Perhaps they had prominent positions in the government. Perhaps they were chairmans of this and chairwomans of that. They were respectable, nice sort of people. And they were apparently respected by their neighbors. And maybe because they were so indistinguishable from everyone else in the society. Their sins apparently were not so gross as those of Pergamum or Thyatira. Maybe they were respectable sort of sins. The kind of sins that society winks at and says, well, that's, that's okay. They're just like us. No big deal. Well, it looks like this was a big deal because Jesus gives the calls and now we'll look at what He calls them to do. We see that in each case He either encourages or corrects or sometimes both. And here we go back to verse 2 and find the call. The first call is to wake up. Wake up. Uh, The command to be wakeful, to be awake, could also be translated to be vigilant or to become vigilant. And uh, that may be the idea here. I told you that Sardis was the capital city, and Sardis had a lower city, and it had an upper city. And you see the remains of the upper city here. This is where the citadel was. This is where the the king and the, the elite of the city could retire when the city was attacked. It was surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs. And the rest of the city, where the common people were, could get overrun. But the elite would retire to their citadel, and it was considered an impregnable city. It was a city that supposedly could not be conquered. It was a city with unscalable walls, unclimbable walls. But uh, two times in its history, um, it was surprised. One time was in a battle with uh, King Cyrus of Persia. And we know of Cyrus of Persia from the Old Testament. He plays a role there. But the king of Lydia and the king, King Cyrus of Persia, met in battle. And then the king of Lydia retired to his citadel uh, because he realized he was outnumbered. He thought, well, we'll be okay here. So he just pulled back into his citadel and King Cyrus surprised him with, uh, with uh, besieging the city. But still... It's an impregnable city. You can't get in here. All they had to do was wait them out. So what the Persians did was they sent a few really good rock climbers up the cliffs of that city. And the people in Sardis thought, well, we don't have to guard these sections of the city because no one 
can get in here. And so they weren't being vigilant. They weren't being watchful. And so that may be the reference here, because this was very much a part of the city's ethos and history that no one can get in here, well, except a couple times when they were surprised. And he's saying, wake up. Be watchful. You have vulnerable points that you don't even know about. You need to be careful. You need to be watchful and strengthened. Do you see what he says? This this sounds like military talk, doesn't it? It says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, the way to be to wake up or to become vigilant and to strengthen what remains is by remembering. Verse 2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Then he says in verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now, this translation is is fine and it, it, it makes good sense the way it stands, but this word, what, usually means how. Look at verse 3 again. Remember then what you received and heard. That word, that word what, usually means how. So let me read it that way. And it doesn't sound quite right. That's why I think the translators went with something that that seemed to make more sense. But let me read it that way. Remember then how you received and heard. If, if If the original meaning is, as that word usually means, how, what could he be saying here? He's not, if this is the right way to read this, he's not saying, you have forgotten the gospel. He's not saying, you've lost the content. If he were saying, remember what you received and heard, it's maybe because they had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten the message and, and traded it for something else. But there's no indication here that they had gone into error. So it may be that they still had the truth of the gospel message. But the problem, if how is the right translation, the problem was that they were not hearing it the way they used to hear it. It was not the same response that they initially had to that gospel message. They had initially heard that gospel message and they responded with with faith and with love and with joy and with enthusiasm. But even if they were still holding on to that message, they, they weren't hearing it in the same way as they used to hear it. And so this does make good sense, doesn't it? To translate it as the normal word, normal translation. Remember how you received. Remember how you heard the Gospel. Certainly, there are many churches that need to remember what the Gospel is. In our day, there are many churches, if you go to those churches, you will not hear the Bible read and preached. You will not hear the good news of Jesus, Son of God, perfect man, crucified for our sins, raised again on the third day. That's the Gospel. You will go into those churches and you will hear religious platitudes. You may hear right-wing or left-wing political talk. Uh, You may hear uh, civic encouragement. You may hear some sort of bland uh, self-help sort of message because they don't have the Gospel anymore. And of course, those churches are either dead or dying. But those aren't the only churches that are in danger of dead, being dead or dying. There can be churches that retain in its purity the gospel message. 
And you will even find it in their service week after week. You will hear of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. But those churches could be in danger because of how they hear that message. Or rather, how they no longer hear that message. Do you know the hymn, I Love to Tell the Story? I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story more wonderful it seems than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. I love to tell the story it did so much for me. And that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. But listen to verse 3. I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. And then verse 4, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Do you see what these verses, especially 3 and 4, are talking about? They're talking about how Christians hear the old, old story. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you to hear the old, old story of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love, crucified for sinners, raised for our life, and to believe it. But if you already believe it, I invite you to hear it again. The, the, the hymn says, Each time I tell it, it seems more wonderfully sweet. And then he says that those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it. Like the rest. Does that describe us? Every time we hear that gospel message, we say, that's it. That's what I need. That's what my soul desires. That's what my my ears need to hear. That's the encouragement that I need. That's what I need today to get on with life in the Lord. You see, it looks like in Sardis, they maybe were still hearing it. But it sounds like it wasn't wonderfully sweet to them anymore. If we go on to the calls of Jesus, He says, keep it and repent. Now in English, we have to provide a direct object there. It actually doesn't have one. It just says, keep and repent. Keep what? Well, it's not particularly clear, but maybe it's keep how you heard. Maybe it's just reiterating that. Keep hearing. Hold on to how you heard, how you received. Keep that and repent. This also seems backwards, doesn't it? In other, in other ones, he leads with repent. Turn back to God. But here he's saying, he's saying, remember how you heard, keep that and repent. And, and, and repentance comes at the end of the line. Why would that be? Well, because we can't repent if we don't hear. So this does make logical sense if we understand it like that, that we need to, to remember how we heard to keep that sort of hearing and then, then we will be able to turn back to God. Now, the, um, 
the consequences of hearing or not hearing. Verses 3 to 5. Remember what you received and heard. Keep and repent. Or remember how you received and heard. Keep and repent. And here we have it. If you will not wake up, if you will not be vigilant, I will come like a thief. That's what happened to Sardis. Right? They weren't vigilant. The Syria or the Persians came and they came like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come against you. The image usually in the Bible, this image of thief, thief in the night, that seems like a, who would dare refer to Jesus as a thief in the night? Well, the good thing is he did. He's the one who, who came up with that image. And what does that express? That expresses suddenness and surprise. And usually in Scripture, usually in the New Testament, this idea of thief in the night has to do with the, old, with the second coming of Jesus. But it doesn't look like that's what it has to do with here. It looks like it has to do with a surprise visit, somewhat announced here, but not the timing of it, a surprise visit that Jesus would make in some way to the city of Sardis. Now, those who had not soiled their garments, verses 4 and 5, this is another consequence, You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. For this is fitting. You could could also see it that way. What's it saying? Those who have not soiled their garments now will walk with me in white then. In other words, the way we live now is how we're going to live forever. So, uh, that's, that's encouraging, but it also is a warning to us. We ought not to think that we can live soiled now, and then somehow think that in eternity we're going to have white garments. The way we, we engage with life now, and with the Lord now, and the way we practice our faith now, that's going to be continued in all of eternity. And then, in addition to that, those who have not soiled their garments will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is fitting. And then, once again, there's always a promise to the conqueror. And what did we see the conqueror was? We got a definition last week of the conqueror. The the conqueror is the one who keeps on believing until the end. The one who holds on to the end. That's what the conqueror is. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The book of life. The book of life appears throughout scripture. It actually appears in the Old Testament a few times and it appears in the New Testament. Let's look at a couple of those instances to try to figure out what this book of life is. If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 32 verses 31 to 33, It's on page 81 in your Bibles. Okay, the people had sinned. They had built, uh, erected this golden calf. They were out of control in this idolatrous worship of this golden calf after the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. So Moses, picking up in verse 33 of chapter 32, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot out of your, blot me out of your book that you have written. 
But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before me, before you. So, what's the book? He says, if you'll forgive them, great. But if you won't forgive them, Moses is basically offering himself in their place. He's saying, may I be erased from your book of life. May I not be forgiven. May I be judged in their place. Amazing that Moses would offer himself for the people, that he would offer to be damned, to be condemned, so that the people might go free. And God says, no, I'm not going to accept your offer of substitution for this people. Rather, I am going to treat each one according to his or her works. Now, there are other instances. uh, They're in the notes that I gave you. You can look those up uh, at your leisure. But let's jump to the end. Uh, looked at Exodus. Now let's jump to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. By the way, there's another, I guess I should mention, Luke chapter 10, verse 20, where the disciples are very excited. They come back from a preaching tour and they say, Lord, this is amazing. You gave us authority and even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus said, Rejoice not because the demons submit to you in my name, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What's the greatest joy and privilege we have, no matter what's going on in our lives? That's the that's a source of rejoicing, no matter what's happened. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now let's find out at the end how this book of life uh, works. And this is the, the judgment scene at the end, chapter 20, uh, picking up in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne... On page 1143, Revelation 20.11, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a terrifying judgment scene here. And the book of life enters in the last verse, kind of as a surprise, doesn't it? Because up to this point... The books are open, and everyone, just like God said back in Exodus, everyone is going to be judged according to what he or she has done. And that's it. And then there's the lake of fire. And then, all of a sudden, as out of nowhere, appears, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And if we turn that around, anyone whose name was found in the book of life is spared from that lake of fire. What's going on here? The books are open. And there's a judgment. There's a reckoning. But there's another book that trumps those books. There's another book that has the, has the, the possibility of overcoming what is written in those other books. And this is the book of life. And whose names are written in that book of life? Well, those for whom God accepted an acceptable Substitute. You see, Moses tried to be that substitute for the people, and God said, no, you can't be that substitute. But there was one who came later, a prophet greater than Moses, 
Jesus Christ Himself, and God accepted His sacrifice as the substitute for sinners. And all who will trust in that substitute, in that sacrifice, have their names written in the book of life. You see, that's the idea. At the end, when we stand before God, we can be judged based on what we have done. And that's an option that you can choose if you want, if you dare. Or you can be judged on the basis of what Christ has done. And if you choose the second, then your name will appear in the ledger of the book of life. Which will it be? Anyone want to stand before God and say, I'll take what's coming? All my thoughts, all my words, all my deeds. Do you want to stand before Him and say, judge me according to those and give me what I deserve? Anybody? How about the second option? How would you like to be standing there or perhaps prostrate on the ground there at this great day and say, no, look in the other book. Look in the other book because I believe in your Son. He's my Savior. He's the one who has paid for my sins. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Don't, don't judge me on the basis of what you find in my books. Judge me on the basis of what you find in the book of life. And Jesus says, going back to our text of today, and I will confess His name. Once again, mentioning the name. Jesus said, if you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father. And on that great day, the books open, the ledgers read. For all who are in Christ, Jesus will say, this one, this one's mine. Father, this one belongs to me. His name is there. Her name is there. He is mine. She is mine. How about that? Do you like that option? Then believe and receive. Well, how do we compare to the church in Sardis? The church in Sardis, good reputation, but dead or dying, with just a few who weren't stained. We, in comparison, seem to have some things in our favor. Um, We haven't been around long enough to fall asleep, to grow comfortable, and to nod off and die. We also can't depend on our great reputation because we don't have one. And we can't look back to our glorious past and rest on our laurels because we don't have one of those either. And we are actively reaching out with the Gospel to bring it to others. Those are all good signs. And so it doesn't feel like we're dead. It feels like we're being born with new life. Now the problem with that sort of self-evaluation is that the dead are the last to know. It's always a surprise to the dead that they're spiritually dead. And so, what do we need to do? To keep from ever falling asleep, what do we need to do? To ever 
become dead as individuals or as a church. We need to remember how we heard. And we need to keep hearing the Gospel in the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this warning letter shot across the bow of all churches. Casardus thought it was fine and didn't know that it was dead. And we pray for ourselves as individuals that we would hear and keep on hearing the way we heard at the beginning. And that we would not grow weary of hearing the Gospel. Not start thinking that it's for other people and no longer for ourselves. But that we would hear it with urgency each time it's preached. And recognizing therein our salvation and our life and our hope and our joy. And I pray for all of us here that all of us would have our names written in the Lamb's book of life that all of us would have faith in Jesus Christ, that He would be our substitute, that He would be our representative before You, that He would confess us in that great day because we have confessed Him and believed on Him in this day. We pray, O God, that You would enable us to strengthen whatever needs strengthening in our midst, that we might not grow weary, that we might not grow drowsy, that we might be watchful and vigilant and awake and alive and hearing until Christ comes again. And we pray in His name. Amen.